I'm Arthur. And I'm Susan. This is the Parent Talk Podcast. Managing the challenges of daily parenting. Thanks to our founding sponsor, Naturopedic, the nation's most trusted source of organic and healthy sleep products for your children. You can visit them at naturopedic.com. That's naturopedic.com. I want to welcome back those brave souls amongst our listeners who, after hearing sort of brave new world of eating and how to think about it with your children, dared to come back and learn more. So we're, we're thrilled to have you here. We're always surprised at all the things we talked about, sleeping and toilet training and discipline. Food was the most contentious and, um, and remains so today. We're going to talk a lot more about food, questions people have raised for us, some tips. But just to frame the discussion again, for those who didn't have a chance to listen to our first podcast, the main themes that we went over were how food works in the body. And it's completely different than most people think about it. We tend to think that it's the parent who knows how much the child should eat. It's actually much neater than that. It's each cell in each person's body is the source of that information. Each cell at every moment tells our brain whether they need some food or not. And then once the brain gets enough signal, it gets hungry and you eat. So we talked about that whole setup. And what that means really is that you can trust your child. Those cells know what they're doing. They will guide you all the way and all the grandparents and aunts and uncles and friends and your own thoughts as parents can't measure up to that amazing ability for the baby's body to know how much they need to eat. I find that so amazing that parents really get very, very worried about that, even when their child is obviously developing and growing well. And as I said in the first podcast, it's something embedded in our DNA. Because after all, if we don't feed a newborn infant, they're not going to survive. But the trouble is, is that we sometimes carry that really important feeling way too long until the child is three and four and older and decide that we're the ones who know how much they can eat and how much they can't. I'm so glad you put that into our opening frame, Susan, because we're all that way. I'm that way. I mean, we we talk about these things, but it's so deeply ingrained in us. It is how we think. And it was a great way to think when there was no food around and you had to go hunt out in the forest or gather something in order to have anything to eat. And so many people didn't get enough food. It was the num- one of the number one requirements of parenting, really of life. You know, one of the life's great challenges is getting enough to eat. But for those who can afford to go to a grocery store, those days are over. And we, we now live in a time when the threat is not coming up short. The real threat to our child's health is getting too much food. Arthur, one of the most amazing things that you told me that I just learned from you was that overeating and being overweight is the number one threat to public health, even has surpassed tobacco at this in this stage of the game. Yeah. I mean, I learned this a couple years ago and every day I think about it, I continue to be stunned that food kills more people than tobacco. And let me tell you, tobacco kills a lot of people. It kills half a million people a year. It accounts for something like 20% of all preventable deaths in the United States. And and now, I mean, nothing even comes close. So um, tobacco used to be the major preventable cause of death. And just imagine for a moment to think that food 
has surpassed tobacco as the number one cause of preventable death. It's so mind-boggling. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's so helpful to keep that in mind. We look at our kids and we're anxious about them eating enough. The real threat we want to protect them against is eating too much. So with all that in mind, let's dive into some specifics. Those were those were stage setters from our first podcast, but now we're coming to you with a little more information and then some tips, some questions. And we're going to wrap up today's podcast with a surprisingly short list of things that will tell you when you actually do have to worry about your child eating enough. Right. So let's talk about how growing changes what you need. And again, harking back to the fact that the only thing that matters really about how much food you need is how much food each cell needs, then it only makes sense that the more rapid you grow, the more food you need. So think about this. I mean, this is just amazing, Susan. We see it. You know, anyone with newborn sees this. You can see your baby growing almost. They look different the next day. And that's because a newborn will double their body weight in five months. Imagine us doubling our body weight every five months. We weigh over 20,000 pounds in 10 years. In fact, newborns are gaining at a rate of 30 to 50 pounds a year. That'd be a lot for us to grow, Susan. It'd be terrible to grow 30, 50 pounds. But imagine a seven-pound baby on track to gain 50 pounds a year. These are really wild rates of growing. And so the need for food is stunning. All you have to do is talk to any parent of a newborn and ask them how they're sleeping, and you'll hear an earful about how much they eat. So if we were to translate into how much we'd have to eat, so let's say a seven-pound baby is eating so much a day, translate that into what a 150-pound person would eat at the same rate, we would have to eat 40,000 calories a day to match. Amazing. You know, Michael Phelps, I think, only ate 10,000 calories, and he was very, very tall and, and of course, burned up a tremendous amount. So just to try to get a little bit of perspective in that, 40,000 calories is impossible, I would almost guess. So the point is newborns eat way more than adults per pound, way more. So that's a a stage in life where you're eating more than parents expect. Because, you know, we all sort of have in our own head the right amount of food to eat is the amount of food that I eat or you eat, you know, the parent eats. And that's just way off for newborn because they're going to eat far more per pound of body weight. And then you get into later infancy, and after four months of age, you're not going to grow that rapidly. In fact, by the time you're two to four years of age, you've slowed growth to the point you're gaining maybe two pounds a year. Instead of 30 to 50 pounds a year, you're down to two pounds a year, which means each day the amount of growth that's happening is essentially imperceptible. You mentioned the two to four-year-old, and that's the age that most parents will come to me and say that they're so concerned that their child's not eating enough. And that makes sense now, because between two and four, their need for food lowers dramatically, correct? Absolutely. So imagine if you're not really growing a whole lot on a particular day, then the amount of food you need is pretty much the same per pound as what an adult needs. So let's look at a 150-pound adult and a 30-pound child. So a 30-pound child is going to be in that two to four-year range. So if they're not needing a lot of extra food for growth, because not growing that much each day, that child needs about one-fifth as much food as I do, maybe a little more to grow. So young children 
in that range of age need to eat far, far less food than their parents think they do. And that's exactly why they come to you, Susan. Exactly. That's why you saw them at that age routinely come forward and say, they're barely eating one meal a day. Well, if you only need a quarter as much food as your parents, well, one meal might be plenty. You know, that is a fantastic segue to our first question. And I'm wondering if you remember Heather. She attended one of our workshops not long ago. And she really, she really, it really opened her eyes to think about how much less food a child of between two and four will need than they did when they were newborns. She asked me this question, and it was, I am really into this. I get that my my daughter, Alma, will decide how much food she needs. So now, how do I convince my mother and my mother-in-law that Alma is getting enough to eat when I allow her to make the food choices about how much food she's going to consume in any meal? Did she herself feel pretty good about how Alma was eating and growing? She did. After coming to our workshop, I'll be happy to say. <laughs> she, she, she was quite quite concerned because her mother and mother-in-law had made her concerned. This is her only child, and she had no other perspective on this. And she began to think, maybe there is something wrong. She's eating so much less than I remember her eating as an infant or even a very young toddler. So I'm going to go back to something you said, Susan, a central fact about our thinking about food, and that is the deep-seated sort of hardwired sense that there's a danger that our kids aren't getting enough food. So if that's sitting there and your mind has sort of come to grips with what we're trying to share with people, that really the real threat is eating too much, not too little. It doesn't matter. If someone comes along and hits that alarm bell, the alarm bell is sitting in you no matter what you think. And so we're all just sitting ducks, easy targets for anyone. I mean, anyone to come by and raise the question. Seems to me that your child's not eating enough. I even fear quoting that line because even saying that's going to set off alarm bells, I'm afraid, in a lot of our listeners. So I I just want everyone who's learning with us to keep in mind that we all have those tripwires in there. And so if your mother or mother-in-law even hints that your child's not eating enough, don't be surprised if a bit of panic uh, erupts. Yeah. It's 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 not your fault. It's it's not your mother-in-law's fault. It's not your mom's fault. It's how we're built. And so I think most parents go through a time when they worry or even get alarmed about whether a child's eating enough. So I, I remember being very pleased that this mother felt some relief understanding her child was growing well. And I think, I think one of the things that uh, we can help her with her parents and grandparents with, first of all, is knowing that she's in charge of her child's eating. So really the question is, what's going on in Heather's mind? It's not really the job of Heather to convince her mother or mother-in-law of this or that. I mean, there's things that we'll go over that she can say that will help the grandparents of Alma to better understand the situation. But the real heart of this situation is whether Heather feels confident that her baby's doing all right. I think you're right. I think that maybe coming to our workshop, hopefully, will give her that confidence to say to her parents... Um, I spoke to a pediatrician. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, but at least one thing that comes to my mind is that looking at her growth chart and saying, look at Alma is exactly where she needs to be. Her growth curve is exactly right. So she's clearly getting enough fuel in her body to grow and develop in the appropriate way. I'm so glad you brought up the, uh, the growth chart, uh, Susan. That turns out to be perhaps the most powerful bit of information we gather at a, at a pediatrician's visit. I can tell you that over the years, 
that has been such a powerful thing to share with families. And for me too, it, it's my best way to know that someone's growing well and eating well. The growth chart won't tell you the quality of the food that you're eating, but for young kids, fortunately, junk food isn't as prominent as in adolescence, let's say. And so the real question is how much food you're eating. Remember, we talked about how the amount of food you need is defined by the cells of your body. Well, the growth curve tells you if your cells are happy or not. It's right there. <laughs> it's right there. You don't have to get a microscope. You don't even have to talk to a biologist. You don't even have to use the word cell. You can look at a growth curve and see if the body's needs are met. And the first, the first sign is whether they're growing well. And I'll just say very briefly that we don't really care what percentile you're at because there's tall and there's short people. We all come in different heights. But whatever your percentile is, we like to see you grow along that because anyone who remembers seeing growth curves will recall all the lines for height are parallel. The shortest child, the tallest child, they're all growing at about the same rate, about two, two and a half inches a year once you leave infancy. So uh, we like to see that. And then if you're growing well, then it's very easy just to check and see if the weight sort of tracks with the height. If it tracks with the height and your weight is proportional to your height, oh my gosh, then you, I can tell you that your child has eaten the right amount to a degree it's hard to even imagine. So the average adult, say, needs about 2,000 calories. So if that average adult eats just 1% more than they need, just 20 calories a day more, which is like an apple, that person's going to gain about 10 pounds over a year. Really? Yeah. So in 10 years, you'll gain 100 extra pounds. The point is, if your child's weight is proportional to their height and not excessive, then they've hit exactly what they needed, what their bodies needed, what all their cells needed to within 1% accuracy. And that's how anyone measuring it or anyone telling the child how much to eat. We all walk around with that sort of amazing accuracy in our heads. I'm so glad you mentioned the percentile because it just brought back a memory of my oldest child who is, well, I won't even say how old she is, <laughs> but <laughs> but she's well beyond adolescence. <laughs> and she was an average size baby at birth. And then by thir the third month was down into like the 10th percentile weight. And I panicked. I remember that feeling just like it happened yesterday. And I was so worried about this. I was breastfeeding her and I was worried, was she not getting enough? And I was lucky enough. I, Arthur, you were not my pediatrician at the time. I think you were too young. <laughs> but my, <laughs> my pediatrician at the time said, she is developing beautifully and we're going to chart her on the growth. And she was always in that, about the 10th percentile weight of her entire life. She was just meant to be a thinner child, but the growth curve itself showed that she was progressing at the right rate for her. For her. Oh, I'm, I'm so glad you mentioned that, Susan, because there was a little complexity in that word proportional. So let's say a child's at the 10th, 50th, 80th, doesn't matter, percentile for height. Proportional isn't exactly matching that. Mm -hmm. What do I mean by that? Let's say someone like your daughter who's very tall, let's say 80th percentile for height. They can be fine at 5th percentile for weight as long as they stay on that line. So their weight is in proportion to their height. I don't mean by that that they're the same percentile. I see. Okay. 
And so there's a proportionality that is steady over time. And that is exactly how she was. She was a parallel track and always very tall and always very thin. We were all fine with that once we got relaxed about the fact that she didn't need to be at the 50th percentile weight because that average doesn't really mean average, does it? No, it really doesn't. You know, average is a nice number for a group. It's sort of useless for an individual. I always think about, you know, I think we mentioned in our first podcast on food, camps usually serve the average right, amount of lunch that everyone yeah. wants. Well, that makes everyone miserable because half of humanity needs less than that. And so they feel like it's way too big a meal. And half of humanity needs more than that. And they don't like it because they're hungry at the end of the meal. So average is a great way to define. I mean, it's very useful if you are a group of a thousand people, but if you're a person, it's sort of meaningless. <laughs> I love that's a that's a great. <laughs> I, I love that that's that analogy. That's fantastic. So if we put this together, you know, you asked me, you know, what would we say to Heather's uh, mother. mother and mother-in-law? I think putting it together, I would say, you know, the most important things that you feel good about how your child's doing, and you've got all the tools, you know, about the growth curve, and you can see how she's doing, and and you trust her now. And if you can get to a point where you trust her, it really doesn't matter if other people don't. You trust her. That's what your child needs. And if I were to advise her on what to say to the child's grandparents, I would say, uh, try to summarize what we just went over and say, you know, I'm really glad you raised those questions. They're great questions. I think it's very important for everyone to know if our baby's growing well. But the good news is I spoke to our pediatrician. The growth curves hold all the answers in terms of whether she's getting enough. I can see. I can see whether she's getting enough. And guess what? She's getting plenty. She is. So she's getting plenty. So that means, and the doctor told me she's doing great. So we don't want to interfere with that success. Let's let her be. Perfect. You know, I have another question that I received from um, a parent. This was one of my COVID Zoom consultations. Uh, the mother is Alana, and her son, Brett, was four years old. And the problem is, is that all he wanted to do was drink milk. He would drink in excess, in excess of a quart of milk a day. Uh-oh. And, and, oh yeah. <laughs> and he was over, he was like four, four and a half. And the problem is, is that milk so dulled his appetite for other foods that he was, the doctor found that he was actually a little anemic from not eating any meat or, or any other kind of source of protein. And she was very, very concerned, but he became absolutely distressed and cried if he couldn't get his milk and she was at her wit's end. So I actually had a piece of advice that usually when we advise parents and we counsel them, it's a process. It takes a while for this process to work. This was one of those times, Arthur, that I like, I put in my book because it was almost an overnight success. Would you like to know what I told her? Yeah, please. (laughs) All right. I said, You determine with your pediatrician how much milk this child should have in any day. He was over four, so he was more than capable of opening the refrigerator and taking something out. You put it in a container and you put that milk there every morning and you say, Brett, this is your milk for the day. I don't care how you drink it. You can have it all at breakfast. You can drink it through the day. You cannot drink it all. It's, it's your decision. Getting very much close back to what we just said about the child making the decisions. And also, I think we, we've talked about this in one of our discipline podcasts. Removing yourself from the situation, even a small step, like not being the person to pour the milk or say, this is too much or this is, you know, whatever, letting the child be in charge. All right. So she did this. She put 
I, I don't know how much milk it, it was, wasn't very much. It was probably like six or seven ounces. She was really trying to, to reduce the amount. And the very next day, the little boy said, you know, I'm only going to have a little bit of milk at breakfast, but I'm saving the rest for after school because I like to have a snack with cereal and, and milk after school. So he saved it for the whole day, drank just that amount of milk, never asked for an ounce more, and that was actually an overnight success. Doesn't happen often, Arthur, but I wanted to share that with you and with our listeners. You know, that really inspires me, Susan, to recall that as parents, we all thrill at the brilliant ideas our kids come up with, right? <laughs> you know, all these amazing things they do. And yet for some reason in food, we have this little corner of their lives where we think they don't have the wherewithal to be creative, <laughs> right. innovative. And this story just really puts it out there. He knew exactly that, how to... It's to, amazing. Yeah, he knew food it. as they are with art <laughs> and stories or reading... <laughs> Right. I know. And he knew exactly how he wanted to drink his milk. It was so successful. I haven't even spoken to her. Maybe after a while, she didn't even have to do that, that he started to self-regulate even when all the milk in the world was available to him. Well, what do you think, Susan? Do you think our listeners would like to know what science has discovered is the essential amount of milk? I mean, cow's milk, rice milk, soy milk, doesn't matter what type of milk. What's the bare minimum you need in order to have strong bones? And I would love to, I don't know it, so I'd love to know it. So after many years of research, science has found and proven that that number is easy to remember. It's zero. Really? Zero. (laughs) After what age? After what age is this, Arthur? As soon as you leave formula and breast milk. There's never an age at which you need cow's milk or rice milk or soy milk or almond milk. Really? So milk is sort of like cheese or... uh, Popsicles. I mean, it's fine to have. It's, but you can live a full life without popsicles. <laughs> Maybe not as happy a life, but <laughs> you can live a full life without them. Uh, we've we've all been sort of the victims of intensive marketing, and, and that, we may tell that story on another podcast of just how we all got schnookered into thinking that you can't have bones without drinking milk. But it's absolutely not true. And in fact, if you look at studies of elderly people and asked them whether they had milk as kids, those who didn't had no more fractures than those who did, had no more osteoporosis. Milk has nothing to do with bone growth. Really? Yeah. You know something, I I think I sort of knew that, but I never heard it said exactly like that. So Arthur, I thought that maybe it would be helpful for our listeners to get some tips on mealtime with your young child. I love the tips you give. This is going to be a great part. Well, I, I try to, I try to say to, to parents, I do live in the real world. <laughs> and I, I like to give you suggestions that you can actually do. Well, Let's one, hear them. All right. Well, one of the things I like to do is that, is that I tell parents instead of plopping food on a child's plate and like giving it to them, we like to give children as much control over something as essential as what food goes in their body. Believe it or not, at the early age of 22 months, two years of age, you can serve food family style. So you take a small bowl of the macaroni and cheese or whatever you're serving, give the child a spoon and let the child put on his or her plate what it is that he thinks he wants to eat right now, just like you would do at an all-you-eat buffet or something like that, right? Nice. And then make sure that the child's plate is not as big as an adult's head. I mean, we really (laughs) want to have plates that are child size because as Arthur pointed out so well, children only eat, what did you say, about a fifth of what an adult needs. So their plates don't need to be as big as an adult's plate. Yeah, a 30-pound child needs 
a quarter or a fifth as much as a 150-pound adult. Another point is that if I can't even begin to tell you how many times I've heard people say this, my friends to their, to their children, they'll say, just one more bite. Or before you leave the table, you have to just try, you have to try a bite or you'll sit there until you try one bite. Do you know what that does? It sets up such a feeling of tension and anxiety. Think about the child who comes to the meal knowing that he or she will not be able to be excused from the table unless they try a food that might have absolutely no appeal to them, might even look disgusting to them at that point in their life. It sets up an onus on food that is going to trigger so many huge feelings for the present and in the future. If there's one point that our parents will take away from this podcast, do not ever insist that your child take one more bite or try something. In fact, the best way to get your child to try new foods is to eat them yourself at the table with the child and offer them very casually. Would you like to try a piece of broccoli? You know, it's and then enjoy it yourself. Children often have to be exposed to a food three, four, five or more times before they'll look, hmm, that does sort of smell good or that looks a little interesting. Absolutely. Just think about people watching Anthony Bourdain and all the stuff he ate, people <laughs> cringing. That's what kids feel like when they're eating a new food. I, that's fantastic because I've actually cringed watching it. <laughs> So I know exactly what you mean. And I have a memory of myself at a day camp where I could not go to the next activity till I ate a beet. Now, it turns out I love beets now, but when I was eight, it was like eating a raw spider or something. Well, that doesn't really make sense, but it was like eating a live insect. I mean, it was so disgusting to me. And I remember what I did is I put it in a napkin and you know how beets bleed, put it in my shorts. Well, my mother was pretty angry because those shorts were ruined. <laughs> well, don't, do not do that to your child. And the last thing I'm going to say about the, just the tips for presenting food is do not make dessert the holy grail. I can't tell you how many times I've heard parents say, if you don't finish at least three more bites of chicken, no dessert. So what does mm. that do, Arthur? It makes the kids think, oh, I see chicken and peas and carrots. That's kind of like, almost like medicine. I got to take it. But the great food in the world, that's my chocolate cake or my cookie. I'm hoping our listeners gather that the reason why you want your child to eat is because their bodies are asking them for food, not because we've incentivized them or we've asked them to eat or to gain the reward of a dessert. You know, Arthur, I think you shared a story with me about dessert with your family. Oh, good memory. So my wife and I have been married almost 47 years. And as we were preparing for this podcast, I just remembered that I think across that time, unless we had company over, we never made dessert. Desserts were never part of our meal. And it turns out we've learned over the course of those years that life can be just as sweet without dessert. <laughs> it's so true. I, I actually, I, it's very, it was very similar in our family. We didn't make dessert a, a major part of the meal because it, if it's just part of the meal, that's fantastic because there's not really good and bad food. I mean, there are foods that might have more nutrients or something, but I like people to think more neutrally about food. And I think that will help them when their children begin to make choices. 
I just want to quickly talk about snacking. Oh, yes, please. Again, when parents are doling out snacks, they're the ones in charge, right, of the food. What I always did in my family, and I've suggested to many families, and I know it works quite well, is that once your child gets to be, you know, walking around toddler two, two and a half, three years of age, they can do this easily. I would put out healthy snacks in a place that they could easily reach. So there might be some carrot sticks or some grapes or some whole wheat crackers with some cheese or peanut butter, you know, that they could dip into with their celery or or carrot stick. And I would leave those snacks out and I wouldn't put so much out that it would be overwhelming, just enough what anyone would consider a healthy snack. The children helped themselves and I didn't get bugged. Mommy, can I have this? Mommy, can I have that? (laughs) They were in charge of getting their own snacks. And I have to tell you, it worked great in my family. We did not make a big deal about it. It just was a natural part of the day. Well, I love those tips, Susan. You didn't disappoint. They're just fantastic and sparkly, actually. So we want to wrap up this session. As you said, we live in the real world. So everyone's going to say, hey, I don't get this. You know, I have to be worried about how much my child's eating can't always be okay. And it turns out if your child's healthy, it almost always is okay if you trust them. But there are some things that can be of concern. And there's really only two that come to mind. And, and the biggest reason, the most common reason, which is pretty rare, actually, to be worried about a child not eating enough food is if they lose weight or if they don't lose weight but fail to gain normally. This happens very rarely, but if you see your child losing weight or failing to gain weight after a while, especially after they've established gaining weight in the newborn period, that's worth looking into. And you're going to need some help to sort out why that is, typically with the help of your pediatrician. And the second reason why we get worried about kids not eating enough is if you feel that they're not eating enough in the presence of other things that actually are more worrisome, like an unexplained fever or vomiting or diarrhea or pain anywhere, or trouble breathing, you know, signs of illness like a rash. These symptoms of illness are the real reason to worry, not that they're not eating well. But I thought I'd be complete and say that's a situation where not eating well is a tip-off in line with the more important tip-off that uh, they have other worrisome symptoms. So if your child's not ill and if they're gaining weight, then there really aren't situations where you have to worry about them not eating enough. Now, as we wrap up today's session, our second on food, I realized that we're going to uh, be talking about food a lot more. And we talked a lot in these first two sessions about how we make sure our kids eating enough. But in future podcasts, we'll be talking about the difference between good food and junk food, the danger of junk food, what it is, how to avoid it. Because older kids can eat plenty, but they might be eating the sort of food that really causes problems with weight and such. So stay tuned for that. It'll be coming on Parent Talk. We're so glad that people were able to join us today. Bye-bye, Arthur. We'll see you next time. Take care, Susan. Thanks again for listening to the Parent Talk podcast. You can find back episodes and send us your parenting questions at parenttalkpodcast.com. And don't forget to visit our founding sponsor, Naturepedic, at naturepedic.com.